All right. Hello. Hi. Welcome to this podcast Hello. that I am recording at my kitchen table. Um, but just wanted to give some background and information about what this is. So I'm calling this podcast series of many short episodes uh, Knowledgeable and Novice. And the purpose of it is really to unpack and kind of explore trauma-informed practices beyond what we're able to talk about in our course lectures and in the class readings. And I'm calling it Knowledgeable and Novice because I, as someone who studies this, feel relatively knowledgeable about the topic. And I have the distinct pleasure of having my boyfriend join me for these conversations because it would be really awkward to talk to myself, who is um, very much a novice on the topic of trauma. Would you agree with that? I would agree. I am a novice. Yes. yes. Not a novice on other things, but definitely on trauma and more practice. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so this yeah. is Casey. You can introduce yourself to the students who Hi. might be listening to this. Hi. I'm Casey. I'm Addison's boyfriend. And I like your Detroit techno shirt. I just Thank noticed you, you were yes. wearing it. Repping the, uh, the Detroit. I know. I'm happy. That's great. Wow. And you were saying this is your first podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so, actually. Yeah. Are you I nervous? Was, uh, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. I have been on several podcasts, actually. Over the years, I've been interviewed by a variety of people. You may have heard of them. Oprah, Beyonce. No, I haven't been on this. No, um, but it's not that formal. It's really just going to be like chatting, talking about some things that I wasn't able to cover in class or that I've been thinking about that I want people to be able to take with them. And the purpose, too, I think the reason for the podcast is that it's just a good outlet and way to access material that's not just sitting on Zoom in this global pandemic where Zoom fatigue is very real. So let's get into it. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I'm going to define trauma. And I want to start by saying that there are a lot of terms in this field and in this work when it comes to trauma. So there's trauma, there's a traumatic event, there's traumatic stress, there's trauma responses, and then there's PTSD. So there are lots of terms, definitions of trauma, and some focus on the physical event, like the actual event that is happening, and others focus on the response. But in short, when we're looking for a definition of what trauma is, trauma is the response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope, and it causes feelings of helplessness, it diminishes their sense of self, uh, diminishes their ability to feel the full range of emotions and experiences. Experiences. So that's kind of what trauma is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just seeing it as like a, well, maybe isolated or continuous event that causes. Could be an event, but it also could, some consider it to be the response to an event. So that's where it gets kind of tricky sometimes, okay. like different scholars define it differently. But essentially it is something that happens and it's the way your body responds to it and the way your brain reacts to it. I also really love the way that Judith Herman defines it. She is a very, very important person in this field. She wrote Trauma and Recovery uh, in the early 90s and is one. that's a text I go back to a lot. And she says, when talking about trauma, she says, at the moment of trauma, so again, she's focused on the event, the person is rendered helpless by an overwhelming force. When the force is that of nature, we speak of disasters like hurricanes and fires and floods. And when the force is that of other human beings, we speak of atrocities. Traumatic events overwhelm the ordinary systems of care that give people a sense of control, connection, and meaning. 
So let's talk types of trauma. So the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, NCTSN, provides categories, kind of like an overarching list of types of trauma that a person may experience over their lifespan. So a lot of people, when they're looking at trauma and they're thinking about what causes the brain and the body trauma, they always want to start with like the interpersonal, the deeply specific, like low level things. But I'm going to flip it because you know that I am a fan of systems and talking about big things. Um, I guess I'm not a fan of systems. I'm a fan of talking about systems um, as they relate to this work. And so just to start out, schools cause trauma. I feel like you've heard me say that a lot. I've heard you say that, yes. (laughs) Schools cause trauma, microaggressions, police in buildings, um, not like erasure, silencing, weaponization of curriculum, programs, ideas, pedagogies can all cause trauma, not only to students, but to the families, to the adults in the space as well. Other examples of trauma might be community violence, natural disasters, um, witnessing or experiencing domestic violence, medical trauma. So whether that's like something goes wrong in a surgery, you have a traumatic brain injury or um, something really negative happens in your family and you witness something horrific at uh, like a, a doctor's office or a hospital, physical, sexual, and psychological abuse, terrorism, sudden loss of or overwhelming grief can cause trauma. And then there are those other things like racial trauma and homophobia and xenophobia and oppression, um, cumulative t- trauma, which is like complex ongoing trauma that lasts for lengthy amounts of time. Um, housing instability, food scarcity, and substance abuse. And this is non-exhaustive. So there are other ways that the brain can perceive something as traumatic or you can experience a trauma. I mean, the other thing too is like, it doesn't discrim- trauma doesn't discriminate and we can't really know what somebody's reaction might be to something. So things like a horrific breakup, a cross-country move, a global pandemic, those are also examples. And I'm guessing too, like a lot of these things are weaved into each other. Definitely. A hundred percent. Yes. And they just kind of build on top of each other. You can have one, you can have more than one. I mean, we'll talk about that when we get into the ACEs study, but yes, for sure. They are um, very interwoven. So one thing to note about that list of the potential traumas that one might endure or experience is that poverty is not explicitly named on that list. Mm -hmm. So being poor or living in an underserved area does not automatically mean that a person is trauma affected. However, some of the experiences associated with poverty, like housing instability, uh, can lead to the body's perception of threat and result in a trauma. So there's lots of studies that have found that people or families who are living in poverty may be experiencing more chronic stress, and that ongoing chronic stress could lead to marital distress. Um, it could lead to harsher parenting styles. There's been studies that have said that living in poverty can lead to increased uh, child abuse because of like lack of resources um, and all of those things then could cause trauma. Yeah, I'm just thinking of like basic household needs or basic um, 
access to food and resources, accessibility, all of those things. Yes. So those are associated with, with poverty. And so just to make a distinction that poverty is not synonymous with trauma. So if we're serving a group of students who are living in an underserved or highly impoverished area, we cannot just assume that every kid walking in our door is trauma affected in a really extreme way because poverty also doesn't always lead to trauma, right? Like the, the things that we are associating with poverty might be factors that lead to some really great resilience. Like those could be protective factors for students and for families um, and be used in a way that doesn't impact them biologically in the same way that something else might. So I like to make that distinction just because I think a lot of times there's misconceptions about poverty and you think like, oh, those people are living through so much trauma. Yes, that's true. But when you really go to unpack it, it's not because they're living in poverty. It's because of all of the things that are associated with living in poverty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So trauma can leave an imprint on the body forever. It impacts brain development, social, emotional functioning, physical development, so much more. Um, generational trauma is also a really interesting thing. I think I've probably shared about that with yeah, you. That Just generational trauma is the idea that like your, our ancestors have experienced trauma. And so our body, the study of epigenetics, a lot is coming out or has come out from Harvard about how our body has memory and imprints of trauma that people have experienced two to three generations ago. So when you're thinking about what those generations were going through, I mean, we're talking like civil rights movement for our, for our grandparents, you know? Um, And so those can, those traces of that can still be found in our DNA, which is absolutely fascinating and interesting just to think that there's so much more involved. Um, And the book, it didn't start with you is a really, really good resource for that. So those are trauma defined types of trauma questions about that before we move into the movement. Um, no, yeah. that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. Great. It just, it, it, it's not, there's no like, I don't know. There, there can be so many different types of trauma mm-hmm. that it, you can't really put a blanket on it in that sense. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's an important thing to note. So then in looking forward from kind of understanding the trauma, knowing what it is, knowing how it's defined and what it's categorized as, there really has been a movement uh, globally to understand trauma. And so indigenous communities who are largely resilient and some of the most incredible communities in the world have been grappling with trauma for years from systemic oppression to historical racism. And they've also been writing about trauma, actually, and studying it long before psychologists even picked it up. So like um, Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart's work is a phenomenal example of like collective trauma and healing through community and some of the things that like the whitewash psychologists maybe are now coming around to. They've been working on writing about for years. And I love that. I love that it's rooted in that. And I love that it comes from there. I do wish we were better about citing them and giving them credit for the incredible work that they've done. But uh, it it really did kind of start with them. And then, as I said before, Dr. Judith Herman's trauma and recovery was a a lot of the early trauma work stemmed from that. And her work really revolved around female survivors of sexual assault. So the, the kind of second wave of understanding understanding trauma and bringing it more into the mainstream world was largely led by women and women who were victims and and flipped it around and said, you know, we're going to become empowered and and call ourselves survivors and teach people what we've gone through to inform the, the knowledge and the data collection, essentially. 
And so other caring professions from there um, have used these kind of trauma-informed approaches with the communities they serve. I mean, social work has been doing trauma-informed practices and trauma-informed studies and like research and community events and like so much writing about it long before education got a hold of it. Medicine, psychology, like all of those fields have been doing things for much longer than us. And so it's important that we also as educators look to them to inform our work and because they can tell us things that have been working and haven't worked and need to be refined and suggest different things for us now in our own field, um, which is important. And then trauma-informed education, um, which I think if you had to categorize how many times you've heard that phrase in your life at this point. The, the most the, from, from you. That I think that's what I hear most from you. <laughs> maybe one million? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll go with that. If I could have a dollar for every time I say it, then Very I would rich. be, yeah, if you could get, just work on that. Sure. I know you want to win the lottery, so we'll, we'll follow up on that. Um, but yes, so within the last 10 years, trauma-informed education uh, has kind of come around again with counselors and social workers and psychologists kind of bringing it into the education field. And probably within like the last three to five years, it's really become a buzzword in education where like everyone is talking about it. And it's kind of this word that if you say it or you add it to like a presentation or a pamphlet, people will be like, ooh, trauma, I want to know about that. It's funny because I was thinking about it today as I was getting ready to do this that when I first joined like social media, probably like well, I was a new teacher. So years ago, I did a search because I had read about it or in one of my master's classes, there was some nod to trauma. And I had done a search on social media and there was absolutely nothing, like nothing trauma informed, nothing with trauma and teaching or schooling, whatever. And now like if you open Twitter, you know, or like you do a search on Instagram of trauma informed education or schools, it's crazy. Crazy. There's tens of thousands of posts of people talking about it. And that's – it's really a, like kind of blown up in an interesting way. Good. It is good. I think the other thing too is it's kind of hard to know like who's in it for the long haul and who's kind of riding the like buzzword phase of it, you know, like who's going to really – be involved and invested in like the long-term systemic work and who just like wants to do it because they know it's the trendy thing and then we'll move on to the next trendy thing. I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> There's room for everyone. I'm like yep. the more the merrier. And I think we can be critical and ask questions about like how this can be sustainable, you know, yeah. for our students and our schools. So now let's talk about the ACEs study. I've also heard you talk about this a little bit too. Yes. Yeah. What would you say my feelings are about the I ACEs I feel like you do not like it <laughs> or I, the framework of it. The framework is problematic. Yeah. Okay. So I'll give an overview and I will remain uh, objective in the overview. And then I'll give some descriptions and details about some things that have been found to be problematic. So ACEs, A-C-E. About, you know, S is little s, stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And so Kaiser Permanente did a study in the 90s where they surveyed a ton of adults and they asked them to check off if they had experienced these 10 things in their childhood. And from that checklist of 10 things, they developed a model to determine and to correlate what 
physical health outcomes people had and how they related to childhood trauma. So like if you were had lots of childhood trauma they found, you might be more prone to heart disease and diabetes and early death. And so it was really in the medical field, it was very groundbreaking because it was finally able to like tie these traumatic events to some of these biological processes and physical challenges that people experience later in life. So this screener was developed for medical practitioners and it was given to adults. And so we're reading in our class right now, we're reading Fostering Resilient Learners as a supplementary text and talked about a little bit why this is a good text, but also, you know, we need to read with a critical eye because the book discusses like, you know, the higher the ACEs score. So if you have a list of 10 traumatic events that you might experience, let's say you have experienced four of those, four or higher means that you are significantly more at risk for some of those negative health outcomes. And so the more trauma you've experienced, essentially the worse the outcomes would be is kind of the study and their findings and and all of that. So I have a really wonderful friend, Alex Winninghoff, who is a, uh, doing her dissertation right now in Georgia, and she is looking at ACEs and the framework and making some really compelling arguments, but she has an incredible piece called Trauma by the Numbers, and she really talks about ACE research and how in every trauma-informed framework, in every paper, in every research study, ACEs is the underpinning of that work. And I mean, even like conferences, podcasts, books, blog posts, like I am hard pressed to find a trauma-informed anything that doesn't in some way name the ACEs study. And that's interesting because a lot of times people are likely to say that ACEs was kind of the beginning of this trauma-informed movement when in reality, as we just talked about, like indigenous people and other compassionate, uh, like caring professionals have been doing this for a lot longer. And so it was building on something more. But it's interesting because it's always talked about as the foundational study. And do you want to guess, Casey, who, who led the study? I can only assume a very specific group of white men. men. (laughs) You're laughing because it's true. Yeah. It was two guys, um, Nspaliti and Robert Anda. And they, yes, they led the ACEs study with Kaiser and published a lot and got a lot of notoriety, like a ton, a ton. And it is like in some capacity, it was novel because of the outcomes for adults. But what ended up happening is over the years, educators, social workers, psychologists have started using the ACEs questionnaire in schools and in education. And that is where the problems really began. So I have kind of five foundational, like overarching issues with the ACEs study and the questionnaire in general. So let's just walk through them. So the very first one is that As I said, the questionnaire was starting to be given to teachers in professional development, staff meetings, like courses for continuing education, and then also to students. And this is not okay for a couple reasons. One, teachers are not medical professionals. Like we are professionals, we are trained, and we are experts in our field, and we cannot 
nor should we be screening for medical issues in the classroom. The second thing is asking a student to address and acknowledge and remember the trauma that they've experienced by filling out a questionnaire in school. There's just like so much wrong with that. Like the setting, the power dynamics, the like space and the safety. Teachers are mandated reporters if they report. Like, Well, just ethically too, like what what do they hope to gain from this study for these kids? It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So like when they look at that questionnaire, when they look at the 10, if again, if you have more than four, you are like a highly trauma affected person. And so that means like you are at greater risk for all of this. And so essentially it's like, well, we should intervene. We should help those kids. But what's happening is it's getting really twisted. And so like there's this one school, not to put anyone on blast, but there's a school in outside of Chicago where if you have more than four aces, so one, they fill out the questionnaire. And then two, if you have more than four aces, you go to a separate classroom and you're like separated from the whole group and you only work on like social emotional and like trying to like learning and other things that they assume you have deficits in because you've experienced trauma. It's just like a track. It's just, yeah, it's problematic in a lot of ways. And again, at the end of the day, they're not bringing doctors and nurses in to administer this medical screener. And so there really is no there's no place for this screener in education. And finally, people are really coming around to it. And in fact, Robert Anda, one of the original men who led the study, wrote a piece in March of this year. It was just published asking people to stop. Like, please stop using this. This is not for schools. This is not for education. So it's interesting because there's like this kind of critical pushback. And yet, broadly, any training, any podcast, any article, any blog post is still naming aces. And so it's really interesting. Yeah. I think just, I would like to think any sort of medical screening is done by a medical person. We we would hope, right? Like I'm a teacher. I'm not going to do the eye and ear tests for my students who need glasses or, you know, like that's just not something I do. So why would I administer? It gets a little gray though, because it's this trauma and everybody wants this buzzword and wants to know. And so it's interesting. The second problem that I have with ACEs is that it was actually constructed with politics in mind. So those 10 items that were chosen on this ACEs questionnaire um, were chosen to ensure that there was an overrepresentation of adverse childhood experiences among minoritized communities. So those who were living in poverty, those who had experienced oppression from multiple intersections are likely to score higher. And so if you think about like the disproportionality of those scores and what that tells us, um, they were Jedi, your glasses Sorry. just fell. Sorry. You're so overwhelmed, so overwhelmed yeah. by the, the adversity and how they were politically uh, chosen. Yes. So um, it, it's just, it's not okay. And I think the fact that they were so specifically chosen with that in mind is just really intentionally kind of a bizarre thing to start off with. Um, and all of this is rooted in research. And so like, if, as I said, Alex's paper goes into each one of these and has great citations for all of it. Um, and uh, says that he chose them, um, like outwardly talks about the choice of using those 10. The third challenge or problem that there are that people have with ACEs, myself included, is that it doesn't recognize everything. So again, like it's kind of watering down trauma and traumatic experience to those 10 experiences or factors when in reality, there's so much more. Like we just went through the categories of trauma. We talked about it. And there are cultural and structural and systemic forms of oppression that are not named at all in the ACEs study. So, and, and who's to say? 
say that those aren't equally as important to a, a child who experiences them or to an adult. Um, the fourth is that the participants did not inform category selection. So those 10 ACEs categories were chosen prior to data collection. So instead of going out into the field, talking to people who may have experienced adverse events and allowing that to inform the 10, they kind of brainstormed and said, yep, these are the 10 that we want. Oh, good. These are the 10 that are going to represent you know, minoritized communities and we're going to move forward. And so they don't really reflect the categories that the participants identified themselves. So like as we, and, and my advisor was on a study last year where they were going through the list of ACEs as a psychologist and they had a doctor and they were saying like, yeah, you asked me about this, but you didn't ask me about this. And why is that missing? And so that's an important thing to note too. Um, and then the last is something that Anda really talked about recently in this piece he just put out. And this is the idea that quantifying traumatic experiences by numbers is really problematic. In fact, he walked back his support of this and he said, please stop. Like, who am I to say that three experiences of, you know, witnessing domestic violence is equal to better than, less than living through one experience of a severe natural disaster. Like how can we, knowing everyone's brain is different and every experience is different and every perception of the event is different, like how can I say, oh, you have four? Oh, you have two? Okay, you have less trauma to the person that has yeah, two. Really it doesn't make sense. And so when you're talking about trauma, it's really important to look at it holistically and broadly and not whittle it down to just like, she's a two, she's a one, this four needs to go to this classroom. And that's a lot of what ACEs does. And again, like a doctor would with a patient, yes, there are main things that you look for, but it's each patient is treated differently. I'm, I'm, right, I'm exactly. And each student, each brain, like there's so much to it. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good point that there are big categories and buckets. And it's not to say that we don't like you know, we don't want to address all types of trauma and respond to them and be informed by them. But as educators, that's not really, yeah. that's not really uh, our role. So trauma statistics. Now we know what it is, some problems with ACEs. And so there are lots of other ways outside of ACEs that researchers measure trauma. There's scales and there's interviews and there's other metrics that have been developed that are accepted in all the fields now that kind of are able to more accurately represent traumatic experience. And so interestingly, one third of American students have experienced at least one or more traumatic events in their life. So thinking about kids graduating around 18, like one in one third of those kids from ages, you know, five to 18 are experiencing some sort of traumatic event. Wow which is a lot. Interestingly though, only three to 9% of those kids are meeting the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. So I think, and there's variations in that too. Uh, like 4% of males who experience a trauma before the age of 18 are going to be diagnosed with PTSD, 7% for females. Um, which I think is really interesting because I think, a lot of people assume that trauma is PTSD, and that is also not the case. Like, you are not guaranteed to develop post-traumatic stress disorder if you experience a trauma. And that's a pretty small number, actually. Three to nine percent of those, yeah. you know, of the one-third are experiencing or, you know, meeting the criteria. So experiencing trauma, not the same thing as having PTSD. 
but the reports for trauma of American youth are really, really striking. And I mean, it's, it's really like one in 10 have observed violence between caregivers. One in five have lost a family member or a friend to homicide. 10% of kids today have been bullied through internet assisted victimization. Uh, you know, 20 to 25 have lived through a natural disaster. And then 20 to 48% of youth have lived through multiple types of trauma. Like That's a huge number of our kids mm-hmm. in our classroom. Like if, yeah, you're the math guy. If I have 30 kids in my classroom and one third of them, I mean, that's, that's a, lot, yeah. a lot of my students who are coming in carrying some kind of traumatic experience with them. So to wrap it up, which I know you're having so much fun, you want to talk about this forever more. Um, so what does this mean for us as educators? Um, now we know, you know, the statistics, the definition, the categories, what it means, what some of the critiques and challenges are in the field. But we know, by and large, the trauma is happening. We know what the data says, and it's really important for us to respond and be informed by this information. So being trauma-informed means literally being informed about the role that trauma can play in the classroom, while also acknowledging our role as teachers and as educators and as people who are there to help students succeed academically and socially and emotionally and all of the things we're talking about in class about development, like that is our role too. And so we also have to uphold really high expectations for all of those things at the same time that we are informed by this trauma and recognize the impact of it in our space. We also need to really recognize our place in the systems that cause harm and that cause trauma. You know, like I started off the categories saying schools cause trauma. It's important for us as educators to know that and recognize that. Um, And then to unpack our own biases and our privileges and to understand our role in it so so that we can do better, so that we can work to dismantle that, to unlearn some of the things we learned and uh, and make it a better place for our students and the next generation. So we're going to do more of that in the next episode, actually. We're going to dive into equity and systemic elements and culture of white supremacy. Dr. Coloma, who's assistant dean for teacher ed, is going to join me on that episode, which is very exciting. We're going to talk all about culturally responsive teaching and relevant pedagogy. And um, so hopefully you will tune in. Thank you for joining us. How do you think this went? We need like a catchy theme song or something. Can we work on that? Yeah, we'll do that. Okay, great. Well,